0: Friends, being a new year, the, one of the things I enjoy doing is changing gears. Uh, we finished our Jesus Letters to the Seven Churches series prior to Advent. Well, really, I took one of the Advent Sundays to finish off with Laodicea. And then we had all the busyness and celebration of the birth of Christ over the Advent season. Pastor Dave uh, began the year with us to uh, just uh, wait upon the Lord and uh, to to take His yoke upon us. And now we'll begin a series of messages that uh, our theme for the the messages are Jesus, name above all names. Who knows? Maybe one of the worship teams or two or three can actually sing this song over the next few weeks. I've been humming it this week as I've been preparing this message. And as you know, name above all names, that that comes out of the Bible as so many of our songs do. And of course, this is referenced to that beautiful Poetic passage in Philippians chapter 2. Because it's poetic, many people believe that it was an early hymn of the church. We often find Paul quoting songs, worship songs, because they have biblical truth in them. And that was the one that spoke of Jesus humbling himself, emptying himself, becoming human, not only human, but dying a death on the cross for us, being humbled, but because of his obedience the wonderful hymn ends with God exalting Jesus. It's not on the screen, but just to remind you what it says in Philippians 2, nine. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place and gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that at the name of Jesus what a biblical sounding phrase and we hear it and we take it in and we understand it we have an understanding but we don't often even think about what that is the bible speaks often of names in the name of jesus at the name of jesus the name of the lord don't take it in vain Names have a special depth and purpose in Scripture that we don't have any longer today. We don't do that. That's not what our names, at least in our Western culture, are. Our names are little more than labels to tell us apart. And sometimes that label is too common. If your name is John and you're a family and everybody's named John, you have to say, well, it's little John. It's big John. It's old John. It's slow, John. You know, it's whatever you have to give a little description with it because they're just labels. And sometimes we we go a little deeper. We say, "Well, I gave my child this name. It's not the most popular name, but if you look at what it meant, that's called etymology. What the word meant in the old days. It was meaningful to me, and I'm hoping my child is like that. My name. I go by my middle name, Alan." you know what that means in old english means harmony it was a name common for singers like remember robin hood's merry men they had a minstrel his name was alan of dale it was the proper name for a singer alan it's an ironic name when it comes to me because that's not my gift at all i'm more like my first name james you know james through spanish comes from jacob james is jacob When we read about James and James the Lesser in the New Testament, those are actually, in Greek, Jacob. You read the Greek New Testament, and instead of James, it says Yaakov, Jacob. Well, why do we say James? Well, the name went through Spanish and Latin, where Spanish with a J on the front, it's Jaime, which we would say Jamie, which became James. Uh, Well, it's Jacob. Unfortunately, it's Jacob, because Jacob means cheater. So I'm a cheating, singing man, you know, James. Uh, we don't take those, those meanings to heart like they do in the Bible. For instance, in our Sunday school class, God's at War, it focuses on the Ten Commandments. And not just the Ten Commandments, but the commandment not to make an idol, not to make a graven image. That's what the series... But if you continue to the next commandment, we see in... Uh, exodus chapter 20 the next commandment speaks of names the third commandment says in exodus chapter 20 verse 7 you shall not misuse the name of the lord your god for the lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name because names are important And the name of God, if names are important, the name of God must be the most important name of all. You see the word Lord there, all capitals. That means it's the uh, name that God revealed to Moses and the Israelites knew Him as, Yahweh. Why are names so important? Sometimes, I do it rarely, but sometimes I will quote from one of my favorite Bible resources. It's called the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. The old one, they just called it by the initials, the ISBE. Well, this is the new ISBE. It was renewed about a quarter century ago, and it's a good tool. And when you come to names, just the topic, names, this is what, in part, it says. It says it would be quite incorrect to say that in the Old Testament, a name was just an identity tag. It's what it is for us. And no more. There, as in other ancient literature, the name of a person sometimes revealed his character, his personality, even his destiny. In fact, a person's name was often considered to be an expression, indeed a revelation of his true nature, Jacob the cheater. As many popular etymological explanations of names given to people in the Old Testament may clear, these explanations may be correct or fanciful, but they bear witness to the widespread belief that name and nature correspond. For example, Esau can say of Jacob, Is he not rightly named Jacob? Remember, that's what Esau said after. Jacob had cheated him from his birthright by dressing up like him and serving his blind father Esau's meal and stole his birthright. And Esau says, Jacob is the right name for him. He is a cheater. But when it comes to God's name, it says in contemporary Western culture, personal names are little more than labels that distinguish one person from another. The pride often associated with having or giving A certain family name or the common use of character nicknames, however, are just pale reflections of earlier times in history, notably biblical times, in which a person's name has much deeper significance. The importance of personal names finds clear expression in the Old Testament in stories concerning the giving or changing of names. The name represented the whole person, It could be said that the name was the person. Thus, a change in a person's character, destiny, or status could be marked by a change in name. For example, Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob, the cheater, becomes Israel, the one who wrestles with God. In the New Testament, Simon becomes Peter, the rock. Names could be given prophetically and assume theological meaning, as did the names of children of Hosea or Isaiah. Thus, if human names are important, it is to be expected that names and titles of God carry great significance. God's person, presence, character, none of which can be fully comprehended by the human mind, are all concentrated in His name. It's a nice way of saying, scholarly way of saying that God's names are windows into His character, into His heart, into who He is. His very nature. Because names and nature in biblical times corresponded. Sometimes you would give your child, for instance, a name, uh, like one who believes that the Lord is salvation you would hear a name would have the name of God in it. If a name ended with Yah, like Isaiah, Hosea, the Yah is Yahweh, the name of the Lord is in there. Or if it has El at the end, like Ezekiel, Daniel, that's El, Elohim, the name of God is in their name. It speaks of who they are, who is the Lord of their lives. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at various names and descriptions of Jesus as ways for us to comprehend and understand something about our wonderful Lord, Jesus, name above all names. And this came to me once again over the Christmas season, because in all the accounts, it talks about you will give the child this name and that name, how important the name was, but it was often different jesus which is like joshua had one meaning but isaiah said he will be called emmanuel which means god with us it had a different meaning and then we have a list prince of peace mighty god we have all of these names given to this one but it doesn't end there we see names that jesus gave himself those hold special importance and significance to us so that is our introduction for these next few weeks The importance of names, they reveal nature, character, destiny. And the names of God are the most important of all. So if you take the name of God in vain, if you hit your thumb with a hammer and shout out, Jesus Christ, that has heaven's attention. You've taken the very name of God in vain. We think of that something in the Old Testament only, where they wouldn't even pronounce the word Lord They would just say Adonai, a generic name instead. How important that is because we are taking the nature of God for granted and demeaning it to just a swear word. It really, as I get older, it always bothered me. Just profanity. I worked in construction. Profanity was the lingua franca. It was the common language. And so you almost... Are immune to it. You ignore it. You don't even hear it almost. But whenever they would swear using God's name, that hurt. That bothered me, and I would communicate that in no uncertain terms. So, the very first name is one Jesus gives Himself, and it's appropriate for a communion Sunday because that has connection to it. <clears throat> is bread of life, the bread of life. Jesus says, "I am." the bread of life. It's one of those great I am passages that Jesus uses for himself for us to understand who he is. But first before we do that we think the bread of life. Yeah, bread. Yeah, I'm I'm on a keto diet. No bread for me. You know, bread is give it or take it come or go gluten free. You know, bread is sort of an option today. It wasn't in Jesus time. Bread is foundational. And the first thing we want to look at briefly is that bread, look at it as the physical life sustainer. Bread is what they lived on. It was the foundation of life and their diet. Now, if this, these biblical passages, for instance, I believe if they'd taken place in the Far East where the staple wasn't wheat and bread, but rice, that was the staple, well, we'd have different metaphors used for God. But this is the foundational food. For instance, we go to our friends who are Filipinos, have a meal at their house. Every meal, what's part of every meal? I see Aisha nodding. Rice. Every meal, rice. And you know, you can have your Filipino friends over and serve them prime rib, turkey dinner, all the fixings. If you don't have rice, they will... Be polite. They'll eat your food. They'll go home and have rice. They'll go home and, oh man, I've got to get home and eat some rice. Whew. Now I've eaten. This is how some cultures are with bread. Middle Eastern cultures, bread is still king. I was reminded of this last May when we were in Turkey. <clears throat> Karem, one of our guides, he says, you know guys, you'll notice when we go to eat that we are a bread culture every meal it's not a meal it could be a snack it could be something but it's not a meal unless it has bread for some people that's potatoes the irish people for instance in the past that was their staple food well let's look at how that came to be in the biblical world for instance all the way back all the way back in genesis chapter 3 the fall of man what did god say in his curse to adam I'm reading it off the screen because it's not the NIV that I have in front of me. It's from the English Standard Version. God says, "...by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." And there we see a carving of an Egyptian farmer plowing behind his oxen. In the Egyptian tombs, we've even found these wonderful little models made of clay of bakeries. One beautiful model has thirteen people grinding the grain, making the dough, tending the oven, baking bread. Bread was life for them. Now it's interesting, you know, thank you, Vern. I' was just getting a little dry, and i'm thinking I'm thinking, Lord, tell Vern I need some water. <laughs> Thanks, brother. He left the lemon out uh, no. <laughs> But bread, you already know the Hebrew word for bread because where was Jesus born? O little town of Bethlehem. Beth means house, Beit. The house of bread, Lechem. Lechem is bread. Literally though, get this, it means solid food, foundational food. If you, for instance, were a Bedouin out in the desert and your staple food was meat, Lechem would refer to meat for you. But for everybody else, the vast majority of people, their daily bread was just that. Give us this day our daily bread. It was bread. Bread sustained life. Now we see that throughout the ancient world. Look at this picture. It's from a tomb, uh, a little statue of a woman grinding grain. That was the most common way to grind grain, Uh, a stone on the bottom and a stone on top and you put the wheat in between. And I did say wheat. They used other grains for bread, but they preferred wheat by and large. And you would grind it up and then you would make dough out of it. You would add water to it and you'd add a little bit of salt to it. And you wouldn't add yeast if you wanted leavened bread. You would take that hunk of dough from the day before, like we do with sourdough, and you would take that piece of dough with yeast in it and you'd put it in your dough and then let it sit and let it prove and rise. And that's what they would do. And then they would bake it. Now they would eat barley bread too, but it was always second place. You know, in their culture, the barley harvest came weeks, if not a month before the wheat harvest. And oftentimes, they had run out of their wheat for flour by the time the barley harvest came in. And oh, that was a hard month for the people as they resorted to that hard, uh, heavy barley bread. And oh, how they loved to have their wheat flour back. Normal people like you and I, our daily bread would be what we'd call whole wheat. <clears throat> it would have bran and everything, gravel from the stone grinding, we find in tombs that their teeth are always worn down because when they ground their bread, they have sand in it. They have little bits of stone. And when you eat your bread, it's gritty, crunch, crunch, crunch. And uh, But if you had guests over, oh, you double sifted that that flour. It was special flour. You get all the rock chips out and you get the bran out and you just use the groat part of the wheat. And that the Bible refers to as fine flour. White flour, like we take for granted in a bag of Robin Hood flour, that was the ultimate to the ancient world. That was used most often to make bread for royalty or for God. It was used in religious uses, like the table of showbread in the temple would be made with fine flour. No bran in that bread at all. Well, after they ground it and made the dough You need to bake it. Most people don't have ovens. Especially think of the children of Israel and others. God gave them bread from heaven. But most of the uh, nomads who live in tents, like the time of Abraham, the most common way to cook bread was in a campfire. In the campfire. We call it ash bread. You make your bread into cakes about seven inches across and you scrape back the ashes until you see the embers. Then you throw the bread into the fire and cover them up with other ashes. That's it. Then halfway through, you can go in and flip them if you're really uh, industrious. That is most of the bread. Now you look at that and you say, are you kidding me? No, that's it. You brush the ashes off, and they say it's quite good. It rises nice. It's fluffy. It was good bread. But you were in a town. Your family, if it was a big family, would have one. Oftentimes neighbors shared open top ovens this is how the bread is made in most of the villages of jesus time this is the type of bread the little boy with his barley loaves it came from these ovens the oven was heated down below with wood or dung and it had an opening for air to get in the bottom and then the heat and smoke would come out the top you would have your sticky dough and you'd slap it on the inside of that oven it wouldn't turn it would just bake right there and then you peel them off and you have your bread. Only the very wealthy or very large institutions had what they called pan bread, where you have the completely closed oven and you slide it in like a pizza oven and you have metal or stone pans inside. And that bread, if it's made with fine flour, you want one of these type of ovens. Well, you see, bread was essential. It was the food, the solid food. Everything else was built on the foundation of bread. So bread was always the byword for the life-sustaining food. Jesus, taking that name and that item and applying it to Himself, reveals to us that as bread sustains physical life, Jesus was the one who was the spiritual life giver. He was the giver of spiritual life. Bread, physical, the bread of life, spiritual life. We can track with that. We understand that. But this came to a head in one of the most acrimonious, combative chapters in the Bible, John chapter 6. Jesus gets into it with the leaders and the teachers of Judaism. He's teaching in the synagogue. He's up there in Capernaum. It's like his home synagogue, basically. Nazareth had rejected him. But he begins to teach. And this is in John's accounting soon after the feeding of the 5,000. So miracles and bread were sort of the theme on people's minds. And as you read through John chapter 6, the people are looking for reasons to reject Jesus or see even more miracles. They may have heard about this feeding, so the religious leaders say, Come on, Jesus, show us a miracle that we may believe. We're miracle people. Remember the desert wanderings? God gave our forefathers bread from heaven, the manna. So we heard you did something with bread. Show us a miracle. And Jesus rejects that. He says that heaven-given bread was just physical. They ate it and they died. As the bread of life, Jesus says He's here to give an eternal life. Do something even more. As that discussion continued, Jesus said to them in John 6, verse 32, I tell you the truth. It's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven but it's my father who gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of god is he jesus is speaking of himself is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world sir they said from now on give us this bread (laughs) if only they would believe Well, they continue, they go back and forth, they're grumbling, Jesus is answering their questions, and then we get further down in this passage, and Jesus makes it explicitly clear that He is the true bread from heaven, the bread that gives eternal life. Verse 48 continuing, Jesus says, "'I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died.'" But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I would give for the life of the world. And then it spins out of control because they are repulsed by that image. Remember, these are people with kosher dietary laws they won't even eat meat with the blood still in it and here jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood my flesh is real food my blood is real drink i think it's purposely offensive he's calling them to make a decision of course he's not speaking about cannibalism though the image of the body and blood of christ that we share together at the communion table. That accounted for the charges of cannibalism in the Roman Empire always leveled against Christians. They meet secretly and they eat flesh and drink blood. Well, who wants anything to do with those crazy people? But Jesus is saying, no. The bread of life is My flesh that I give for your lives. He gave it on the cross. And we remember it by taking physical bread in memorial of Jesus, the bread of life who gave His flesh on the cross that through faith in Him we might have spiritual yet eternal life. We will eat this bread through faith and we will not die. It's an amazing thing. And it's only this bread of life that gives spiritual eternal life. It's not one of many things. Well, your diet's Jesus, the bread of life. Mine over here is something else. This is my worship. The Greek gods, the Roman gods, secular materialism, they all get us the same place. No. Jesus says, this is the bread. This is the foundation. Jesus chose for His name the life-giving food. The only one in that culture. He is the living bread. The bread of life. As made so clear in Acts chapter 4, Peter and the apostles speaking before the Sanhedrin, he said in Acts 4 verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is what? No other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The name of Jesus. The person, character, Jesus. When we speak and believe in His name, we believe in the God-man Jesus. He and He alone can save. It's the bread that gives spiritual, eternal life. But like bread, physical bread, you don't just eat it once. It's for us daily daily. Give us this day, Lord, our daily bread. And we know from Jesus referring to Himself as the Word and the bread of life that feeding on the our daily bread is feeding on God's Word. It's feeding on God's Word. It's part of our, our daily life. Some of you read that daily devotional provided here. I have it as an app on my phone. It's called Daily Bread. And that's nice. It's got the little verse and a... Some good, some not as good little illustrative thought and it has a little explanation. Those are good. But that's just an appetizer. Our daily bread, we need to to have more. And I'd like to do it, I'd like to remind you this time of year, this is a wonderful time, though you can start any time, a planned Bible reading. Reading through the Bible in a year. Now some people, if you're doing that, if you started fresh, I use the Ligonier Ministries plan and it's a very common one it it has starts in genesis and then a reading from matthew and you go through all of the lives of the patriarchs for a while and you have jesus and the sermon on the mount and some people don't get much further there's lots of different bible plans but you need to feed on god's word every day you need to be systematic or you go hungry you go hungry and you spiritually begin to starve the wilderness wanderings, 40 years. Boy, that must have been tough. But it was for a reason. Those 40 years, God took a slave race from Egypt who didn't know him, and he revealed himself and taught them who he was. So by the time they crossed the River Jordan into the Promised Land, these were the people of God. They knew him. And they had learned from him the wilderness wanderings were his great schoolhouse for 40 years. One of the passages that reveals this is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 and 3. They're important because Jesus later meditated on this passage and quoted it back to Satan when Satan was speaking of bread. Jesus had fasted 40 days, and Jesus, Satan says, if you're, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus quotes, passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8 the passage says remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know that what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands he humbled you causing you to hunger then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In God's great schoolhouse, He taught them that yes, physical sustenance is important, but it's not the end of the story. There is a hunger inside of you, there is the you that is more than your physical body, there is your soul, there is your mind. You need to feed that on God's word and truth, for it is rich fare for you, true food for your soul. This made clear, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55 verses two to three. Isaiah says, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. He says, Come, don't waste your money on that which isn't true bread. Hear me, my word. Friends, don't starve yourself. Feed your soul you've tasted the bread the bread of life which has saved you but you need to feed on his word healthy eating healthy eating for the soul it's a diet it's something we do every day don't you love that famous old picture it's just called old man praying for his daily bread he's praying not only is the loaf there but his bible is there as well You need physical feeding, but you need even more to feed your heart and to feed your soul. That is how you grow up in the Lord. For instance, in Hebrews, one of the important passages in Hebrews, because this was a group of Christians who were struggling with maturity, whether they even wanted to continue to follow Christ. And the author of Hebrews wants to tell them more, but it's hard because they're not mature. That passage in Hebrews chapter 5 begins in verse 11. You're right, we have much to say about this. But it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Remember what lechem means? Solid food. That's the bread we need, God's Word. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant, it's not equated with the teachings about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. That constant use is your systematic, regular time in the Word of God. We need it. It grows us. It matures us. We grow up in the Lord through that healthy diet for our soul. Jesus, the bread of life. But I said it has meaning as well for Communion Sunday. Final point as we come to the Lord's table is that Jesus took the bread. Now He took the bread at that table. It was unleavened bread as part of the Passover meal. And the bread and the elements of that symbolic meal, they had certain meanings that spoke of their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus gives them their fulfilled meaning as our deliverance from sin and death, the slavery of sin, and the death that is guaranteed through His sacrifice. No longer is it a lamb whose blood was put on the doorpost. It's now the Lamb of God who sheds His blood for us on the cross. The bread which reminded them of the bricks that they built in in Egypt, uh, made bricks without straw. They had to gather the binding material. It was so hard. Now the bread, it's going to remind us of the body of Christ given for us. As it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, while they were eating... This is the Passover meal. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to His disciples saying, Take, eat, this is My body. It's the person of Christ received through faith. We celebrate that reality by remembering it in a communal time where we take of the loaf together and eat it. The Apostle Paul talked about the importance of it. That when you participate at the Lord's table, as I've mentioned here often before, we practice at Troshu Baptist what we call open communion. Some churches have a closed communion. It's only for members of that church. Open communion is for all who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We come together and we take that. The Apostle Paul, remember, in First Corinthians chapter 10, was talking to a church struggling with food sacrificed to idols. Paul says the idols are just that. They're not real. And if food is food, he says the flesh counts for nothing. He says, but if somebody tells you, here, have some of this meat. I got it in my participation at uh, at the temple, for instance, of Apollo. Well, if they're identifying that meat as participating in the worship of Apollo, Paul says have nothing to do with it. But if they don't identify it in that way, it's not going to hurt you, he says. He uses as an illustration the communion table. He says, don't you remember that when you take that bread and cup, you're participating in the sacrifice of Jesus? In our hearts and souls and minds, we go back to that old rugged cross on that hill far away, and we remember and see in our mind's eye Jesus giving His life for us. We're worshiping Him. We're participating in His sacrifice for us, and we're receiving it in faith. To make that point clear, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving, which we gave thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break our participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. We all believe in the one Savior. Jesus is what binds us together. Physical bread is a reminder and an illustration of that spiritual reality. You we are saved by the bread of life. And we live on that daily bread. And so we come to the table. Scripture says, be mindful as we enter to the table. If there be anything in your life, unconfessed sin, a broken relationship that keeps us from a clear conscience coming to the table, deal with it. Sometimes in good conscience, you have to let the elements pass by. Don't take it in an unworthy manner. But we'll have this time of prayer now as God brings things to mind. If we confess our sins, He's faithful. He's just. He forgives us our sins. Cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And following that prayer, we'll come to the table and share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for revealing Your names to us. Lord, the Bible mentions names that that nobody knows. But one day, to those who overcome, You will reveal that name to us. Lord, we are awestruck. We are amazed at Your character, Your nature revealed to us in the names we do know. Almighty God, Prince of Peace, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Living Water, And yes, Lord, today we've seen the importance of the bread of life. Lord, Jesus gave His flesh to the cross as a sacrifice for us. The only one who lived without sin died in the place of we sinners. And Lord, now through that bread, which was sacrificed for us, putting our faith in Jesus, we too have eternal life. For those who eat the bread sent from heaven will never die. Father, in remembrance of that, we come to a table and we take an element, a morsel of bread, we take a cup, and Lord, we remember the body and the blood of Jesus given to the cross and shed for the cleansing of our sins. Lord, we do it humbly, but with great joy that we were the object of Jesus' mighty act and His selfless love. Lord, if there be anything that's keeping us from You at this time, may we confess it and find freedom from it and keep short accounts with You as we ask You to give us our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Lord, for Your Word is food for our soul. Bless us now as we come to the table. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. The next chapter over in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he speaks of the acts of the Lord's Supper. He says that some people are being selfish at their communal meals, their love feasts. Some are full while others are hungry. Paul says, I can't commend you for this. He says, major in the majors. Focus on what's important. And he reveals to them once again, it's the bread and the cup shared equally among God's people. in remembrance of Me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As we come to take the bread which reminds us of Jesus, the bread of life given for us, I'll ask Pastor Dave to give thanks for the bread. Lord God, we just want to stop and pause. And thank you for sending Jesus something so solid and rich for our lives. Jesus, we just thank you that you would be willing to be broken for us. Uh, we just thank you for this gift. Here is a remembrance of bread, um, just remembering your body being broken. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Kevin will give thanks for the cup which reminds us of the shed blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your willingness to come pour out your blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And Father, we thank you right now. And Father, we remember that. Mm -hmm. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. the same way after supper jesus took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me amen friends stand with me now as we're dismissed with prayer heavenly father lord we give thanks We give thanks for the bread and the cup which remind us of Jesus, the living bread, the bread which has come from heaven, Jesus, the bread of life. Lord, this coming week, may Jesus, who has given us spiritual life, continue to feed us through His Word. May we crave and love and hunger for Your daily bread as it grows us and matures us to be like Jesus. This is our prayer, and we pray it in His name. Amen. God bless and keep.